Good morning, church. My name is Mark Rowland. I am uh, filling in today for uh, Pastor Matt. Uh, they have spent, uh, his family has spent the week in Disney. And it turns out that, uh, that he and Goofy have started this, this incredible friendship. In fact, afterwards, Goofy had him over to his house for lunch. And you know, sometimes you meet people and you just become kindred spirits. That's what's happened. Matt and Goofy. Who would have guessed that? But anyhow, it's very cool. So they should be on their way home, if, uh, if not already home. Today we're beginning this new five-week series uh, called The Artisan Soul. And we're going to be exploring the, the biblical idea uh, of beauty. Now, I, I was campaigning for a, a one-week series. Because, um, you know, I'm, the, the Bible is concerned basically with three things. It, it's concerned with, with what is true. That is church doctrine, and, and it's concerned with goodness, which is about human behavior, and, and it's concerned with, with beauty. And I do really well with, with the first two, with goodness and, and truth. I preach on those all the time, but, but beauty is not something I talk about much in church. And so to do this for five weeks, it's going to be a little intimidating, but I think it's also going to be fun. I mean, think about how much art... Uh, think about how much literature and, and poetry, think how much architecture has, has been inspired uh, by faith. Some of the, the greatest buildings in the world, inspired by our, by our faith. Uh, think of artists like Milton and Shakespeare and Handel and, and, and Bach and Da Vinci and and Michelangelo and Rembrandt, to, to name just a, a, a few. Faith inspires beauty, and I believe beauty inspires faith. I mean, think about it. Uh, how, how many of us have had one of those transcendent moments of beauty where it just takes our, our breath away? A, a beautiful sunset or a sonnet. The birth of a child, a grandchild. The first time you, you laid your eyes on your future spouse. Handel's Largo or Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring can bring tears to my eyes. And this will sound weird, but the smell of a freshly cut hay. I'm kind of a country boy at heart. And I love that. And, and it evokes the deepest Feelings of, of awe and wonder and gratitude and, yes, reverence. Uh, here's a picture that my photographer daughter took while we were on a family vacation. I mean, even a storm can inspire fear and wonder, can't it? But there's a paradox about beauty. Like everything else, we don't always agree on what it is. And, and so the smell of freshly cut hay, which I love, may just make somebody else sneeze. Or, or handles Largo, which brings tears in my eyes, might just irritate you. So, so like everything else in, in this world, we have differences uh, of opinion. And, and also, beauty doesn't last. It, it fades. Storm clouds quickly pass. The sunset fades into darkness. And we photograph it, but all we get 
is the memory of the moment, not the moment itself. The, the good looks of a young man or a young woman that turns heads will begin to fade. In a few years, they'll be using makeup to cover it up. And those of us who, who are older, we know what's coming. Wrinkles and aches and pains. Now here's, here's what we need to remember. That God is a source of beauty. And in Genesis chapter 1, we find God creating beauty. He, he, he's working, he's, he's designing, he's, he's engineering, he's inventing, he's sculpting, and he's shaping the world. What we discover in Genesis 1 is that God is an artist. And in verse 26, Genesis chapter 1, God creates his magnum opus. And he says this, let us make humankind in what? Our, yeah, in our likeness. Now that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? To say that I'm God's magnum opus. It sounds arrogant. But humanity is the only creation that God creates in His image. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the, in the image of God? It, it means that we're created in God's representative likeness. That we have mind, we have conscience, we have feelings, we have desires, we have the powers of mental and physical action. And it means that we have a, a unique and special dignity. And it means that everybody that you and I meet has the same image of God stamped upon them. Everybody that you meet has the image of God. Psalm 8 says, What is humankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And yet you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You and I are the crowning jewel of God's creation. But not only that, it also instructs us how we should live. That we should live as, as God lives in, in Genesis 1 with resourceful rationality and wise love making praiseworthy plans just as God made plans in creation. We are to produce things that, that are good. To show love and goodwill towards other people. We're to bless them as God blessed Adam and Eve. And we are to care for creation as wise stewards. So that means that, that every human being is, is made in God's image. Everybody, no exceptions, every person you meet has the image of God stamped on them. And that means, guess what? Everybody has worth. Everybody has value. Everyone has beauty. No less value. No more value than anybody else. And so in chapter 2 of Genesis, we find these words. The Lord God took the man and woman and put them in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so here we have the, the first glimpse of, of humans. And what are they doing? 
They're, they're working in the garden and, and, and they're, they're creating beauty. They're working in the garden. They are caring for it. They are creating space for humans to flourish in God's presence. And in chapter 3, humanity falls under the spell of sin. And so you and I, we are driven to, to be self-centered and self-seeking. And we have been robbed of our power to love God and to love our neighbor. Oh yeah, we still bear the image of God, but it has become disfigured and marred and distorted. And not just us. Again, Genesis 3 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and, and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so all of creation is distorted, and, and our relationship with the earth is is distorted. And the, and the blessing is that, is that humans were made in the image of God to create, to, to take this creation project forward. But the curse is now that that role is hard. And, and now the Bible says there's going to be painful toil. Now there are thorns and, and thistles in the ground and there's sweat on your brow. Now there are blisters on your, on your hands and, and sore backs and we use icy hot and ibuprofen to, to relieve our, our pain and we need workers comp and, and we need medical insurance and, and we're all thinking I need a vacation because work is hard. So the blessing is, is cursed and humans need to be saved. And Adam and Eve need to be put back into a right relationship with the Creator, put back into the garden, back because now they, they are separated. They are outside of the garden. They are outside of the, the place of flourishing and, and shalom in God's presence. And, and they need to get back to fellowship with God. And that will come, but it will take God's gift of, of union with Christ to restore it fully. And through this gift of Jesus, we will come to share in His resurrection life. But because of it, we are made in the image of God. But it affects how we treat each other. Last week, I was reading, uh, it was, uh, somebody had posted on, on Facebook um, these words that says, You are made in the image of God, and so is the other jerk that you're arguing with. <laughs> now folks, in the first century, when, 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 when God came into this world in the form of Jesus, this idea of, of every person having the image of, of God was unheard of. In, in fact, in the Roman Empire, it was a place where Christian values were little known or honored. Corruption and business was, was pervasive. Morality was at a historic low. Uh, divorce was so common to the point that, that marriage was little known. And life expectancy was half of what it is today in our country. Few, few parents saw all their children grow to adulthood and, and epidemics would, would, would sweep through the cities to the point that up to half of the population would periodically be destroyed. And famine and, and civic unrest rocked the empire. 
And so this idea that, that every person had value and, and that all of life uh, is sacred was unknown to them. You see, Roman law and, and religion uh, saw nothing morally wrong with abandoning a, a newborn in the garbage dump if they were the wrong sex or if they were sickly or if they had a deformity. And Christians would oftentimes go into these, these garbage dumps and they would rescue these babies and they would, they would raise them as their own or, or they would care for them until they died and give them a decent funeral. And when these plagues would hit the cities, the, the standard public health approach was to leave town. Leaving behind the elderly and the, and the disabled who could not leave. And Christians, often at the risk of, of losing their own lives, they would stay behind and they would take care of these people. They would feed them and they would love them. And, and many of these people became believers in Christ because of it. And by the fourth century... Churches were, were building hospitals. In fact, uh, the Council of, of, of Nyssa decreed that whenever a, a cathedral existed, there was to be a, a hospital, there was to be a, a hospice caring for the poor and the sick. And, and that's why even today, many hospitals have names like Christ and Mercy and, and Bethesda and Good Samaritan. And when slaves and, and others were forced to repopulate the cities, it was the Christians who would offer them places to live and help them find jobs. Now the history books teach that the Roman Empire became Christian in, in 313 AD when the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity after he had a vision uh, during a battle at the Bridge of Milan. But the truth is, the empire was already Christian. By the year 350, there were 33.9 million Christians in the empire, representing about 56% of the population. And so Constantine already had a Christian majority. He had no political choice except to legalize the faith. And so it was not that, that he changed the empire into a Christian nation. It was the result that had already been changed by Christians who day by day lived out their lives because they believed that each and every person in the empire had the image of God stamped on their souls. Christians living their lives, caring for other people, sharing their faith. They lived their lives in such a way that people saw their good works and gave glory to their Father in heaven. And so the church, the church helped to change ideas about women. It helped to change ideas about, about marriage. You see, back in those days, marriage was done for, for primarily for economic and political reasons. But Christian husbands and wives, they, they stayed faithful to each other. They tried to avoid divorce. And the church began to teach that, that marriage isn't some kind of economic arrangement, that, but it's a covenant between a, a man and a woman, a God-directed covenant that showed human capacity for, for, for self-transcendence and, and real community. That marriage is a spiritual thing. It's not just an arrangement. The church worked to educate people. By the year, by the year AD 150, Justin Martyr began to form schools in both Ephesus and Rome. And he, and he taught, he taught the old, he taught the young, he taught men and women, rich and poor, slave and free. 
And finally, when Rome collapsed and the barbarians began burning all the buildings, most of Europe's libraries were destroyed. But Irish monks copied by hand every manuscript they could get their hands on. And so monasteries became the center for, for learning and, and for acquisition, preserving and, and the transmitting of knowledge. And guess what came from that? Universities. The first university was established in, in Paris around the 12th century. Oxford and Cambridge followed soon after in England. And, and they were called universities because they reflected the, the idea that God created all things. And so six years after landing in, in America, Puritans established Harvard University with this purpose. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. In 1780, a, a, a Christian named Robert Rake started a Sunday school in England. But it looked nothing like ours today. Uh, it was for poor children who worked in factories six days a week. And he believed that education could break the cycle of, of poverty and, and ignorance. And so he gathered these children on Sundays because that was the only day they weren't working in the factories. And he began to teach them. And he taught them to read. He taught them how to write. And, and, and he taught them about God. And that was the beginning of the British public education system. By 1831, there were 1.5 million British children who were involved in Sunday school, taught by 160,000 volunteer Sunday school teachers. Vast majority of the pioneers of science, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Copernicus, Joseph Priestley, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, were all Christians. German astronomer Johann Kepler wrote this. He said, God, like a master builder, has laid the foundation of the world according to law and order. And God wanted us to recognize, the, recognize those laws by creating us after His image so that we could share in His own thoughts. Folks, we even see this in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Now we're still working this out in this country, aren't we? But that's where it started. The understanding that each and every one of us has value because we're created in the image of God. Did you know it was Christian activists who organized the abolitionist movement? That throughout Europe and the United States, Christians, usually Quakers, were the first ones to, to, to uh, found the, the abolitionist movements. And that it was the effect of one of the great revivals called the, the Second Great Awakening that, that caused Christians to take this, this theoretical, this theological idea that we're creating the image of God and, and began to see that it applied to all people equally. And so this young man, William Wilberforce, 
one of the leaders in England, he wrote in his diary when he was 28 years old, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And so Wilberforce, with, with others in, in English Parliament, despite determined opposition, finally were able to abolish the British slave, uh, slave trade. They changed the world. You see, this idea that we're all created in the image of God, that all of us have beauty and worth, changes the world. And we see it in the arts, we see it in science, we see it in government, we see it in education, we see it in marriage, and we see it in human rights. Now certainly Christians have not gotten everything right by any means. But this idea that the beauty of God is stamped inside each and every one of us can radically change our world. So that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And what we discover is that God is not finished with this world. That God wants this beauty to be reflected in us and that He has a plan to restore the full image of God in each and every one of us. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And he recalls a story in the book of Exodus when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and his face was shining because he had been in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. God, the glory of God, was all over him. And, and people could hardly even stand to, to look in his face because of it. And, but then, what, you know what happens to all of us, that glory began to fade and so it says that he placed a veil over his face so that no one would see the fading glory. And so the Apostle Paul takes that story and he says that in the same way, a veil covers the minds of unbelievers and makes them hard-hearted towards the things of God. We have hard hearts towards God. That we are unable to comprehend the glory of God. And so Paul writes this in verses 8, 15 through 18. He says this, Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying, that in Christ, this veil of spiritual blindness is being taken away, and we begin to see God as this living, personal presence, and there's now nothing between God and us. There is no veil. Another translation of verse 18 says this, that our lives gradually becoming brighter, and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. Our lives are becoming more and more transformed into the image of God. And that's God's goal for you. That's this process. And we call that discipleship in the church. It's becoming more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. 
That's God's will for each and every one of us. And in Romans 8, 28, it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. God's plan for each and every one of you is little by little, every day, to be transformed into the image of Christ. It will happen. Folks, this is huge. You are created in the image of God. But God is not done with us yet. Aren't you glad? God wants us to resemble. God wants us to reflect. God wants us to represent Him to others. He created us with imagination and with curiosity and talent. He gave us the capacity to hope and to dream. And He placed within us the power to live an extraordinarily creative life. And because you and I are created in the image of God, we all carry within us this essence of the artist. You and I, we need to create. We need to be a part of a process that, that brings something good and something beautiful and, and something true into the world. And God Himself is, is the master artist. And He is patiently and meticulously crafting us into something truly beautiful in order to bring His beauty into the world. You and I are the ones who are to represent God to this world. And like a painting represents an object or an image, you and I are to represent God to the world. To bring life and joy and peace and beauty into the lives of others. And because we are God's handiwork, our souls function best when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Him. You ready to do that? Let's bow our heads. God, what an amazing truth that we are created in your image. That the divine is stamped on our souls. Yeah, it, it's not the way that you intended. It's, it's distorted. We don't always act like we're creating your image, but God, still, it is true. And that you started this process to make something beautiful out of our lives and that within us, God, is that is that inner artist that is waiting to come forth and to show beauty to the whole world. God, help us to surrender our lives to you today and to begin letting that image show forth. God, this is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.